Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Welcome to Can Africa Be Part of the Solution to America's Critical Mineral Supply Chain? Please welcome Josh Maservi, Research Fellow for Africa in the Heritage Foundation's Douglas and Sarah Allison Center for Foreign Policy Studies. Well, good morning, everybody, uh, or good afternoon. Um, uh, thank you all for coming. Uh, thank you to our, our online, online audience. We have about 200 people tuning in from all over the world, so a lot of interest in, in the topic. And um, really, really excited uh, because we've put together a great panel on an important topic uh, at a critical moment, I would say. Um, so uh, my name is Joshua Mazervi. Uh, I uh, handle the Africa portfolio here at the Heritage Foundation. Um, and today, of course, we're, we're going to be talking about critical minerals and uh, the U.S.'s vulnerable supply chains and what role uh, can Africa play in, in trying to shore up those problems uh, for the U.S. Um, I'm going to uh, go right to our introductions um, because we don't we only have an hour and there's so much that we could discuss here and, and we have so much expertise gathered that uh, I don't want to waste much time. So um, I'll start with our, our virtual guest here. Uh, this is uh, Mr. Hank de Hoop, um, who is who is joining us from London uh, virtually. He is the CEO of SFA Oxford, which is a advisory consultancy firm uh, specializing in platinum group metals, uh, battery metals and materials, uh, and related issues. Hank has almost three decades of uh, work in the mining, uh, engineering, and finance industries. Uh, he's worked on mergers and acquisitions. He's an expert on the relationship between platinum group metals, mining, and the auto sector, which is a, a hot topic, of course. Uh, and also on battery materials and metals for hydro for the hydrogen economy. Uh, he was at RMB Bank for about uh, more than 10 years. Uh, before that, he spent 12 years as a mining analyst. Uh, and he was also an explosives engineer for several years. So uh, you know who to go to for all your explosives <laughs> needs. Um, he is a uh, graduate of the University of Delft in the Netherlands. Um, so welcome, Henk. Um, uh, to my right here is Mr. Uh, uh, Pierre Leon. Um, he is the global chair of uh, Herbert Smith Freehills Africa Group. He is one of the world's uh, preeminent mining lawyers. Uh, he has particular expertise on Africa and on issues such as resource nationalism, mineral and petroleum regulations in developing countries, and international investment law, among others. Uh, he's practiced on the continent for decades and, and beyond the continent. He is a senior scholar of Christ College, Cambridge. Uh, he's a council member of the International Bar Association and a graduate of the University of Cambridge and uh, the University of Cape Town in South Africa, of course. Uh, and then last but not least, uh, Dr. J. Peter Pham. Uh, he is the distinguished fellow at the Atlantic Council. He's a non-executive director of Rainbow Rare Earths and uh, a non-executive director of the Afrocell Afri Group. Uh, he most recently was the special envoy for the Sahel, uh, for uh, the US special envoy, which was the inaugural position. Uh, first time anyone had held that. Uh, he was also special envoy for the Great Lakes region. 
He's a uh, prolific author, um, articles, essays, books, um, and he uh, gave me my first job in Washington, D.C., so if, if anyone is looking for someone to blame for my career, uh, you can direct your ire <laughs> towards him. Um, uh, and also, uh, he was recently accepted into the American Academy of Diplomacy, so congratulations. I'm going to start uh, uh, with Hank um, and, and bring him in uh, for uh, sort of the, the thousand foot view of, of this issue and um, hoping, Hank, that you can walk us through um, uh, a Critical Minerals 101, uh, briefly, of course. So wh what are they? Why are they critical? Um, and what is the market for them now, and, and what's the forecast uh, look like? Why do we expect these minerals to not only continue to be important, but actually to increase in importance? Um, and then finally, uh, where, does, where does China fit in uh, into, this, uh, into the critical minerals landscape? Sure. Thanks, uh, Joshua, and thanks, everyone online. Maybe start, uh, let's start with a bit of a definition, and there's a range of definitions, but I thought the one that is fairly simple to understand is, is any substance used in technology that is subject to supply risks and for which there are no easy substitutes. Now, if you look at um, the list of critical materials defined by different governments, they can be different for different regions because what for the one country is critical because they don't have any of it, is not as critical for others. So the European list is is quite different from the US list. But um, if one looks at why this subject has, I guess over the last 18 months, two years, become even more important than what it always has been. But if one looks at the amount of um, call it detail that is being provided by the different regions, how it has crept up in the debates as 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 in a, in a matter of importance is for Essentially, I guess, two, three main reasons. First, um, the emergence of electric vehicles and the need to make massive transformations for in what for most countries are very important industries. It's not just putting the cars together, but there's a very large supplier base attached to it. It, it is a real revolution if you look at what it requires from a sourcing of materials to put these cars together from what it historically was and what it is going to be going forward. There are certain commodities in there that are uh, being ramped up in volumes that the world probably has never seen, an acceleration in demand of these metals that, um, that, that used to be going much more at a call of GDP rate that because of the change in technology is, is ramping up at a, and, and required to ramp up at a, at a hectic pace. And we're talking particularly lithium, cobalt, nickel, of course. The other reason why this has become such an important subject is the Ukrainian conflict. Um, there is um, a, a really important drive coming through now where the Ukrainian conflict, the energy security as a result of it, some of the metal security, because Russia is an important producer of certain critical materials, combined with the attitude that China is taking in the world, has forced all the large regions to focus on our supply chains. The last two, three years, COVID in the background, big disruptions in container traffic, big disruptions in getting goods to plants, there's a big chip crisis that has really choked the car industry. There's a lot of reasons why corporates 
and countries have started to think differently on how we source our material. It is not a global world anymore as much as it was probably five years ago. People are starting to think if we want to really build these industries, we better make sure we have access to these metals. Now, there's another reason why critical materials have also ramped up on the agenda. There are certain countries that have started to become very, very dominant, and particularly China is obviously one of those, where if one looks at the percentage control they have, and with the attitude, I guess, of China becoming less integrated rather than a more integrated, it does impose a lot of risk if you want to build out your own industries, and a lot of that metal will have to come from well, I guess a lesser friendly country than what it was in the past. Um, rare earth is obviously the, the main example. Um, we're talking control of over 90% of the world supply of these and where our earths are particularly becoming linked to these new developments is in magnets and in the car industries, um, the windmills and so forth. If you go back a bit further in time when solar was becoming a big theme, um, China was ahead of the rest of the world in ramping up their solar capacity and, in fact, became so successful and scaled up in it that it killed the industries in a lot of other regions. They could not survive based on the, 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 the essential uh, success of China ramping up solar to that extent that solar became eventually very cheap as well. And it, it pushed a lot of the emerging solar industries and the rest of the world out of, uh, out of business. Now, Something similar is starting to happen in the battery electric vehicle side, for example, where a lot of the critical material debates are focused at the moment because that's where there's a, a massive amount of capital going at the moment. The cumulative capital committed to the BEV transition by car companies around the world is $1.2 trillion up till 2030. Now, you can imagine that type of investment is, is going to really change the landscape. And again, um, China was very much ahead of everyone else. They built the lithium supply chains, particularly the lithium processing chains, locking in supplies from the Australian suppliers, from the South American suppliers. And there's a risk again that they are building up the scale ahead of anyone else, which will make it very difficult to compete in that area. The first Chinese cars are starting to arrive in Europe and they're very, very competitively priced because it's the one manufacturer that makes their own batteries and mines their own material and gets it all the way in the chain into the car and actually becomes very competitively um, against or the established Euro European base that has been trying to change into and, and revolutionize the production process but have not been as fast as China in getting that done. U.S. is very much facing a similar dilemma, and um, the uh, basically the Inflation Reduction Act has tried to 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 preempt some of these developments coming through, and trying to insist that quite a few of the materials that one would need to build an electrical uh, vehicle supply chain, for example, eh, are ha have to be sourced either on soil or from friendly countries, and they're big incentives and. Subsequent to the act, there have been a whole range of new announcements on battery plants being built in the U.S. because it has, has had a very positive effect. Now, if one looks at eventually coming back, then, okay, where does Africa play in this? Now, if you look at what the geological distribution of resources, um, Australia is a mining region, obviously South America is a mining, uh, mining region. In principle, 
Africa should be a major mining region as well. If you look at what resources they, they sit on and, and what could potentially be produced from those resources, because that is an important point to, to explain as well. Um, resources are great to have, but if they're in the soil and you make it too difficult, either economically to extract them or physically, where your logistics don't work, you don't have power, you don't have infrastructure, it will not get mined. Now, that is unfortunately the situation in, in Africa. South Africa was probably the most, well, and it still is the most industrialized country uh, by far in, um, in, in Africa, and has been very successful over 150 years, call it, of mining industry and building out those resources they set on. It has not only been, call it, a, um, a relatively stable environment to build these out, maybe with the exception of the last 20, 30 years, but it was also a very rich geology that they were sitting on. They have the biggest vanadium deposits in the world, the biggest chrome deposits in the world, the biggest manganese deposits in the world, the biggest platinum group metals deposits in the world by far, the biggest gold field that ever existed were in South Africa. But there are other countries in Africa that have very comparable richness. And we're talking particularly Zambia and the DRC, and Peter is gonna talk a bit about that later as well. The Congo probably, the DRC, has, has some of the absolute richest geology you can find anywhere on Earth. If you dig up a copper mine in South America, you're looking at half a percent of copper per ton that you would mine in big volumes to make it profitable. In the DRC, Robert Friedland from Ivanhoe is uh, ramping up a mine, which is going to be the third biggest copper mine in the world, um, which mines five, six percent copper. It is, a, is an incredible rich ore body that, that is available and a lot of that's still to be discovered. To get that done though, he needed to, to, to really um, spend many, many years first discovering it, working with different governments that had different attitudes to its mining as well. But also he had to build up his own power infrastructure, often even building the own border posts because they weren't set up to handle trucks with concentrate leaving the country, for example. Despite all that, he did manage to pull off uh, uh, an amazing project that has uh, has has absorbed obviously billions billions of dollars, but it's going to be for decades to come one of the most important copper producers in the world. So it can be done, but it is it's proper pioneering work, and I think where um, he um, decided to partner with a Chinese firm. I think if one wants to break through in some of those resources-rich uh, countries, um, it is not an easy task. It's a lot of hard work. Um, it needs a lot of risk capital as well because um, there is a cemetery full of failed mining companies in Africa. So it is not for the faint-hearted. But at the same time, if one looks at the ease of doing business increasingly South America is becoming a lot more difficult as well. Government uh, policies are getting nationalistic. Um, so in, in, on a relative basis, I think Africa is not necessarily going backwards. It is often that other regions are going backwards, making Africa not look as scary possibly as what it used to be if one compared it to say opening up a mine in Australia or opening up a mine in South America. Still, um, I think if one looks at the ability of, of Africa to attract investment flows, we've had some very big changes in friendliness or unfriendliness towards mining 
in, uh, in foreign investment in Africa. And those shifts in policy, I think, have been very damaging to, to, uh, to Africa's image. Um, we have, for example, now a much more mining-friendly um, government in Zambia. But before that, it was getting increasingly tough to actually justify any investments in Zambia. And it's slowly coming back, that, that willingness to look and consider countries. And I, I think a final point to make, and if you want to hold, um, diversify your supply in critical minerals and you are looking at Africa, it is time intensive. Mining from discovery until all the paperwork is done, and that's often a longer road nowadays because of all the environmental concerns, into actually producing the goods and having the ability to export. We're talking often 10, 15 years. And that is also where the debate in critical materials has, has, has become so um, urgent. The demand side is far easier in sight than the supply side. It, it takes you two years to build a gigafactory, but to find the minerals and supply the minerals to that gigafactory, we're talking often seven to 10 to 15 years. So there is a mismatch on the speed at which we're moving into certain critical material heavy demand sectors and the world's ability and Africa's ability to supply those as well. So uh, maybe I'll leave it at that for now and um, uh, back to Joshua. Yeah, thanks, Hank, um, for that really interesting overview. Uh, there's a lot. There's a lot to to unpack there. Um, we'll go to uh, Peter Fahm next because um, so Hank sort of gave us the thousand foot view, uh, hoping you can take us down to maybe the intermediate view. Um, describe for us the scale of the U.S.'s critical minerals challenge, uh, if you would. Um, uh, Hank touched on it a little bit, but but. How bad is it? Is it not so bad? Is it okay? Um, and then could you also describe um, Chinese companies' um, activities and presence in the critical minerals industry uh, in Africa? Again, Hank touched on it, but, but dig a little bit deeper for us. And then maybe um, a few ideas right, for what the U.S. can do here. Uh, sure. Uh, and I'll, uh, that's a lot, quite a bit to <laughs> uh, unpack <laughs> in five minutes. But, but thank you again, Josh, for organizing this. It's, uh, it's great to be with you and with Peter and with, with Hank. And thank Hank for setting, it, uh, setting up the, since we're talking about risk, I think, it might be useful to begin by kind of unpacking a, a couple of things, a different way of looking at it. Uh, the need for the US, indeed for the world, for these minerals is burgeoning. Uh, even if it's not reflected in the spot price today on some of these minerals. Mm -hmm. To give you just two data points, in order to achieve the 1.5 degree uh, Celsius uh, uh, global warming, that is the target of various COP meetings, including the COP27 coming up, uh, we're going to have a shortfall of somewhere in the, in the next decade of 9.7 million tons of copper alone, just to achieve that very, very modest goal. Uh, it's got to come from somewhere. Uh, to speak about the U.S.'s uh, vulnerabilities, cobalt, absolutely essential. We all know about it for electric batteries, uh, all sorts of other applications. Uh, our domestic supply is such, there's a lot you know, in the so-called Inflation Reduction Act about encouraging domestic supply. I'm all for reshoring if the geology permits it. But if we scrape together every last ounce of cobalt 
that we have in reserves in the United States and maybe do a little bit of recycling, we might just eke by five years of demand, and after which we don't have anything left. So this has got to come from somewhere. And this is where I think Africa has a unique role to play. And I would kind of put the role in several different baskets. There are areas where Africa can provide minerals that are needed that are available elsewhere. Uh, Hank talked about increasing political, I would say even the social license to operate in places like South America, Chile. For copper, well, Africa, you know, the, as he mentioned, uh, Robert Friedland's Ivanhoe uh, mine at Kamwa Kakula in the Democratic Republic of Congo, it, within two years from now, is going to be the third largest copper mine in the world, powered by hydro that uh, the company put in, renewable energy, and that's going to be a contributing swipe. Copper is found in various places in the world, but Africa certainly will help fill that gap. Otherwise, uh, you know, the gap of investment, 23, 25 billion a year that isn't in the pipeline to meet the goals that the world has said it wants. So that's one way Africa can help. Then there's the, where geology favors Africa. And there you have to, uh, differently, cobalt again, to return to that. Currently, the Democratic Republic of Congo produces roughly 70% of the global production that we get into processing. I'll return to that in China, as you asked me to. So that's another area where, uh, slightly differently, it's not fine. You can't find it anywhere. There are pockets elsewhere, but not in the concentration. It's found in Africa. It's, that's critical. Uh, period of iron. Uh, we're going to need, you know, the, even with the, today's depressed prices, the global slowdown and all of that, it's expected that the demand for iron to go into steel and other applications is going to grow to roughly about 3 billion tons a year by 2024. Uh, where's that going to come from? Again, Africa presents a solution among, a, there's a lot of iron going on, but Australia, that's been long mined. Uh, Guinea, the Nimba Mountains, uh, there are projects there. That mountain is literally a mountain of iron. It's, mm. You're talking about 60 and above grades of ore. Uh, so there are opportunities there. And then finally, the final basket, I would say, that we have to kind of divide things in, are the truly the rare earths that we talk about. China currently dominates 90% of that supply chain. The only way to de-risk it is to uh, look for alternative sources. Now, full disclosure, I sit on the board of a publicly traded company, Rainbow Rare Earths, that has two sources. One, a mine in Burundi. The other, a project based on fossil gypsum that we've recently uh, published the, uh, the economic studies on that potentially over 15 years can produce really $3 billion worth of the stuff in concentrate oxides that are exportable back to the U.S. But the challenge for these resources that come out of Africa uh, is going to be how do these companies survive that monopoly. And the reason I point that out, if you go to La Rochelle in France, there's a lovely art cooperative that one can visit. Uh, what used to be the Rhone Poulenc, uh, the largest rare earth processing plant in, in the world at, at, in its time. Through a concerted price war, they were driven out of business entirely by Chinese competition to the point where today you have a lovely art studio, but no rare earths being processed there. And that, I think, is the, the lesson that you, if we want to secure our supply chain, we need to also talk about offtake and other things. 
Now, one last comment on the operations. Uh, it's not just that China controls the processing, but it also has acquired, uh, over a number of years, assets in Africa, mining assets. And the DRC controlled virtually almost all of the uh, cobalt uh, mine facilities. However, it's also locked in a significant fight with the government of the DRC, which is asking legitimate questions like, this was a deal that was made under the former regime, supposedly for $6.8 billion of infrastructure in exchange for $6 billion worth of minerals. Heaven knows how much minerals were taken out, but no one can point to $6.8 billion worth of infrastructure anywhere uh, in the country. Uh, in fact, the only piece of infrastructure anyone can point to is the one hotel that everyone, everyone stays at when they go to Kinshasa. Uh, it's a very lovely hotel. I wouldn't have very many conversations in the hotel, but, uh, <laughs> the, um, but, other, but it's a lovely little hotel. But it's certainly not a $1 billion, much less a $6.8 billion hotel. So that's an area where, again, the United States, there are instruments that, that we have uh, to help either with anti-corruption investigations, examination of contracts, uh, forensic audits, and then, more importantly, on the positive side, uh, the authorities given within the Development Finance Corporation, DFC, and other instruments to assist with uh, in taking equity as well as uh, credit to operations that serve the national interest. So we need to look more seriously at that. There's been some modest steps for DFC money being indirectly invested in the mining sector through uh, TechMet, but that certainly there's a lot more that could be done there. And that serves, again, to secure a supply chain. Yeah, thank you. Um, <clears throat> there's, there's so many interesting uh, avenues we could, we could go down there from your comments. I'm struck by how metals intensive renewable energy sources are. Um, EVs uh, require something like, uh, depending on the mineral, like three to seven times uh, the amount of minerals that, that a normal car does. Uh, wind turbines, solar panels, these are all incredibly uh, metals intensive. And uh, you touched on it, Hank touched on it. The capacity just isn't there right now. And mining is such a long-term project, very difficult. Again, Hank talked about this, that it's really hard to see you know, how we're going to get to these, these targets. Um, uh, but again, uh, I do want to bring in, in Peter here, because um, you know, uh, you've worked all over the continent and beyond, but you have a special expertise and experience with a country that's come up already a bunch of times, and that's the DRC. Um, DRC, uh, Hank said this, uh, arguably the richest deposit of, of minerals in the world. Um, we're probably not even sure all that it contains because, um, you know, geological surveys and mapping of the entire continent um, uh, have, are very patchy indeed. Um, and DRC and Zambia are both really interesting, another country that you've done a lot of work on, uh, are both really interesting case studies because of the Chinese presence, uh, especially. Dr. Pham referenced it. Um, similar story in Zambia. Um, they've, they've had uh, successes, obviously, uh, Chinese companies in, in these countries, but they've also had problems. Um, so I was hoping uh, that you could do a couple, um, a couple things for us. Uh, sort of give us an analysis of uh, the Chinese presence in these countries and uh, how did this come to be? It's it's a somewhat recent phenomenon uh, over the last couple of decades. So if you could sort of walk us through that, mm. uh, and then 
you know, what, what lessons are there for the United States, um, uh, given China's experience in these countries, uh, its successes, its, its failures, um, and, and particularly because the US, used, a U.S. company used to have a presence in DRC, yeah. right? Famously, Freeport McMoran, um, uh, very wealthy, uh, had, a, had a very rich mine, and, and now a Chinese company has that mine. So again, five to seven minutes, lots to unpack there. Yeah. Well, Josh, thank you very much for having me. Great to be here uh, this morning or this afternoon, wherever people are listening. Uh, the, the, I mean, there's a big difference between the DRC and Zambia obviously share the copper belt. Um, so, and and uh, Hinks already mentioned the fact that the copper belt is one of the richest geological areas in the world for copper and cobalt, even though compared with, in terms of copper, compared with Latin America, it's relatively small fry, but has about 30% of the world's cobalt reserves, so, I mean, it's, and 10% of copper. So it is very significant, but it's the richness of the resources that is so critical. But there's a big difference between the two in this sense from a Chinese angle. Because if you look at China's role in the DRC compared with its role in Zambia, it's been a slightly different approach. In the DRC, to my mind, and you, you referred to the, uh, the CMOC acquisition of the Freeport assets, the Tinky mm -hmm. mine in the DRC in, in 2016, but when, that was preceded by deals that, that go back many years when, uh, when uh, Nixon was in office here, um, when those mines were originally acquired by U.S. investors. And you've seen over the years a uh, progression of, of sales to Chinese companies such that the Chinese now own, I think, something in the region of 15 out of 19 cobalt assets in the DRC. Um, so their, their focus in the DRC has clearly been on cobalt. And I think with all due respect, the U.S. has been rather asleep at the wheel in, in, in letting this happen because it, it's been a slow process uh, and uh, very recently CMOC acquired the Kasanfu asset in the DRC uh, from Freeport. So there I think the, the Chinese approach has been extremely strategic to secure these cobalt resources which are incredibly rich uh, in material. In Zambia, it's been, uh, and there have been issues, and, and Peter's referred to them, there have been issues between Jacqueline and, and CMOC in the DRC, which looked as though it was going to get very messy and it's finally been resolved. But MMG, another Chinese company in, in, in the DRC, is threatening international arbitration against Jacqueline and, and the DRC government over a dispute over its mine. Um, as I say, the CMOC issue has been resolved, but in the Zambia, it's been a a different issue. If you actually look at Zambia, there is, from a Chinese perspective, very little investment in mining as opposed to Chinese loans for infrastructure. So in, Chi in Zambia, you've really had um, what I would call debt trap diplomacy at work by the Chinese uh, lenders, many of which are state-backed state or state-owned uh, and as you know, uh, Zambia was one of the first countries in the world during COVID um, to go into the, the government defaulted on its on its bonds. It, it's unclear what the extent of Chinese lending in in Zambia is. It's anywhere between six and nine billion dollars. And China has come along uh, with the Paris Club on the on the creditors committee in terms of resolving the, the debt issues in Zambia. But they're in, they're, the Chinese 
interest in Zambia has really been around infrastructure, loans for infrastructure, uh, and certainly the criticism has been that when um, the Patriotic Front under Edgar Lungu was in office, and uh, fortunately he went out of office last year, and you now have a much more liberal, democratic, economically sensible administration under President Echelima, which is much more mining friendly. All the issues with the mining industry in in Zambia, and I, I worked on one of them uh, for Vedanta, uh, were, you know, that, that was an Indian company. Glencore were there with the Mapani mine. Uh, that's obviously a Swiss company. Uh, issues between um, the Copital Energy Corporation and Zesco, that didn't have any real Chinese influence. So the, the issues in, in Zambia have been much more about Chinese lending, and some would say the, the, the allegation is predatory lending uh, to Zambia, and you know the allegation, I'm not saying it's correct or not, is that some of those loans were um, benefited the elite in the then ruling party, because if you look at um, the Kenneth Kaunda terminal at, uh, at Lusaka International Airport, the project cost something in the region $300 million. A lot of people think it should have cost $100, $150 million. The question is, why did it cost that amount of money, and where did the money go? So that, that, those are the concerns around, around Zambia. And I, so I think the Chinese influence from a mining perspective in Zambia has been relatively low. The Chinese, on the other hand, have got much more involved in Zimbabwe. They've recently uh, acquired a lithium mine there. And obviously, Z Zimbabwe, despite all its political problems, is the, is the biggest has the biggest lithium deposits in, in Africa and is potentially the biggest lithium producer in Africa. And obviously lithium is a key ingredient for the green energy transition, just as cathodes and cobalt are a key element for the green energy transition from the DRC perspective. So uh, I, I've answered your question a long way around, but I, the, 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 the one thing I would say about the, the DRC is um, Everybody wants to get there, I mean, who's prepared to take the risk. And Henk has referred to uh, Robert Friedland's huge investment in the copper and cobalt mine. I mean, he's saying, and, and we, maybe we can talk about this in the discussion, Henk, he's saying that it's, it's less risky to invest in the DRC than it is in Chile under the current left-wing administration in Chile. Except I would say to that that obviously the... Uh, changes the Chilean constitution were rejected in the recent referendum, and the government appears to be less messianic about tearing up the Pinochet-era consensus around mining than they were before the election. So one has to see what will happen in practice. But, but certainly, um, it's very interesting how all these full circles develop, because, you know, in it, Ten years ago, Africa was really the center of resource nationalism, and I've done a lot of work around that in, in Tanzania and Zambia and places like that. Uh, and Latin America wasn't, but what you're seeing now is the reverse of that, because Latin America, if you look at Chile and Peru, which are the two biggest copper producers, is becoming much more resource nationalistic than many countries in Africa. Obviously, and Hinks referred to this, South Africa is a bit of an outlier there, because the government is still very ideological about mining, which has had a very negative impact on investment in the South African mining sector. But if you look at Zamb coming back to Zambia, I mean, the, the Hitchelim administration 
has said it wants to look at the whole issue of, of mining royalties. They have now made mining royalties tax deductible, which was not the case under the Lungu administration. The government's now looking at amending the, the Mines and Minerals Act, the mining code in Zambia to make it more investor friendly. One has to see what will happen. The DRC loses an election next year. Obviously, Sishikedi is preparing to run again. Uh, and there have been all these fights between Jacqueline, because what normally happens, Jacqueline is a state-owned miner, and normally it will have a 20% free carry in any new mining operations, to, which is by law that, that it's given. Uh, and it's had, as you've indicated, uh, and Hank and Peter referred to this, all these disputes with uh, with uh, with uh, the invest with the other mining companies in in the DRC. So that's a bit of a Cook's tour, and I'm happy to talk about it some more in the questions. Yeah, um, I have a just quick questions for each of you, and and I'll stay with you maybe mm. um, on the the DRC issue, especially, um, but also I guess I guess across the continent. So regulatory environments um, mm. uh, really vary on the continent, of course. Uh, but um, the the regulatory risk and, and the political risk for for a lot of mining companies does seem quite high on the continent. Mm. Um, can you give us your sense? And, and you talked a little bit about how uh, Africa is moving a bit away from the resource nationalism. Do you think that's a sustaining trend? Like, is is that a trend that's going to continue? Is this a blip? Um, what's your sense of, of what the sort of the regulatory environment, and, and I know it varies widely, yeah. but... Um, Look, it, it, it depends. I mean, I, I, you know, I, I spent three years working in Tanzania uh, on the crisis that President Magufuli uh, created for, for Acacia and many of the mining companies there. Um, as you know, he's since uh, passed on, and President Hassan, his successor, uh, even though she comes from the CCM, is much more economically liberal and moderate. Uh, and, and she's determined, for example, to get the offshore gas industry off the ground, and that's a key deliverable for her. Uh, and certainly there's been some slight pushback some, from some of the sort of very resource nationalistic uh, measures that the Magafuli administration took in Tanzania in 2017. But it's very difficult to say because, I mean, every country differs uh, but certainly what I saw in Tanzania in 2017 was then followed by what uh, the Lungu administration did in Zambia to Vedanta and to Glencore uh, in 2019. So, I mean, that sort of pattern of resource nationalism in East Africa sort of spread to Central Africa. I mean, the one outlier, uh, and it's interesting, my friend Tony Carroll is in the audience, uh, is, is, the, is Botswana, because it always gets the top marks in Africa for uh, having the, on the Fraser Institute survey, having the best, most investor-friendly mining regime. And it has, combines that with an independent, competent, technocratic civil service, which many African countries simply don't have. So Botswana is, is always the outlier. It always gets the top ranks on the Fraser Institute survey. I mean, countries like Ghana, which have more relatively, you know, been relatively good have slipped in recent times, despite the fact that it has a reasonably good mining code uh, and, and, and a nominally independent minerals commission. So I think it really depends where you go. Um, but I, I have the sense that African mining uh, regimes are becoming a bit more pragmatic 
than they were, and less ideological than they were in the past. Well, that's, that's good news. Um, I, I wanted to swing to you, Dr. Fahm, and, and maybe you want to chime in there, but um, uh, so please do, but I also wanted to layer on another question for you. Um, you've talked a little bit about friend sourcing. I've, I've heard you talk about that previously. Um, can you sort of uh, describe that a little bit for us and how you think maybe that can be part of the solution for the United States? Um, uh, and then, um, yeah, any, I, I think you wanted to jump in on, on Peter's comment. Yeah, yeah. no, certainly. Uh, and just to, uh, a two fingers on what Peter said, I agree with what was said there, but I do think we need to approach this with two things in mind. One is a bit of realism, uh, both about what we can do here in the United States and what can be done there. And secondly, uh, keeping an eye on what is our strategic objective as the United States. The strategic objective at the end of the day is de-risking our supply chains to these critical minerals. That's the, the objective at the end of the day. And how do we best do it? And, that, and this is where I may engage in what, uh, uh, to my fellow conservatives or libertarians, uh, may seem like a bit of heresy, but uh, uh, to take that in order to achieve the strategic objective, which is we can use a little bit of that resource nationalism and some of the sentiments. At the end of the day, as much as we'd like an easier, realistic, practical uh, licensing and permitting regime in our own country, we all know that Americans suffer from a horrible disease of nimbyism, not in my backyard. Uh, getting processing done for a lot of these minerals in the United States, Good luck. Uh, the, uh, whereas the regime is a little less severe in places like Africa, yet they don't capture the value of their own resources. Mm -hmm. I mean, to me, one of the most ironic stories in the world is in the name of the energy transition of a greener economy, you're going to mine or other cobalt in the DRC, <laughs> put it on diesel trucks, yeah. send it a thousand miles to the Indian Ocean, burning how much? carbon in the process, put it on a boat, which will consume more fossil fuels all the way to China, and heaven knows how it's processed there, uh, all in the name of getting greener. That's an absurdity, an absurd story. Now, if processing were done locally, and this is where a little bit of African nationalism, I think, dovetails with U.S. interests, if it was done locally, it would certainly be, would save all the carbon that was spewed out getting it to China. It would allow Africans to capture more of the value chain. And thirdly, uh, longer, it's highly unlikely geopolitically that any African country, the DRC or any others, is going to hold up a access, American, as long as we're willing to pay whatever the market price is, hold up access to process uh, minerals over, say, a maritime dispute or a freedom of navigation exercise. Uh, so we de-risk it, uh, our supply chains, by at the same time helping build up the value at which Africans want to keep talking about. So it's a, it becomes the true win-win in, in this, this whole equation. So I would advocate for thinking a little outside of our normal boxes and perhaps embracing solutions that, you know, appearance might not be ideologically pure, but achieve the strategic objective at the end, which is critically de-risking these supply chains for us. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, Hank, I want to bring you back in um, just quickly, um, and then we, we need to get to some questions and, and discussion. Uh, 
you know, we, we've talked about this, and you did as well, this uh, surge in um, projected demand for these minerals. Uh, Africa is a major source of these minerals. Other places that have them are, are difficult um, for a whole host of reasons, with, with some exceptions like Australia, but Russia and China are, are major, <laughs> uh, hold major reserves of some of these minerals. <clears throat> Why aren't American companies more involved in uh, the African mining space. Uh, we've already talked about Freeport McMoran a little bit and how they've, they, they did withdraw from, from DRC, which again is one of the richest um, deposits in all the world. Uh, what's your sense of that? Yeah, it's a very good uh, question, uh, Josh. The, this, this, I think the big question is, uh, at the end of the day, money is looking for uh, uh, the balance of risk and return. And I think there have been a couple of great successes, but if one looks at the amount of companies that have given it a shot and have tried, there's been a lot of failures along the way as well. And I think if one looks at efforts spent on, say, exploration in Australia and converting that into a, let's call it a 10-bagger, and having tried the same in South America, yeah. having tried the same in Africa, Africa probably has a, has a fairly poor track record. And actually, the conversion of, of risk money um, into the returns that a shareholder, uh, that type of shareholder would, would look for. We've um, I've spent 30 years in South Africa, and we've seen a very, very clear almost collapse of foreign interests mm. by, by as the result of poor policy. If 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 there is a denial of called economic returns or excess returns based on the risk taken, eventually that money money will go somewhere else. And I think, and Peter already uh, um, touched on that. We've had some very inconsistent election by election changes in investor friendliness and investor unfriendliness. And I think if you look at a, a long term curve of Zambian copper supply as a country. It is very, very clear how when Zambia became independent and ended up nationalizing the industry, the copper industry completely collapsed. And it was only rock bottom when it was hardly producing copper anymore. It started to open up to outside companies and outside capital. It started bringing back some of that volume. Um, and again, there have been changes in government and government's attitude to private investment that have stalled that again. And, and it's that type of risk of, of committing long-term capital and eventually not getting the return that you're seeking. Um, eventually, people will give up. And I think it's not even US-specific. I think uh, it's not that either European capital or Australian capital was much more successful. Africa has unfortunately not been that friendly to uh, long-term capital gaining the returns that, uh, that it needs. It, it, it's it's also then one of the, I guess, uh, benefits that you have if you have a geology that is extremely rich, like the Congo. What you do get is when you get through all the hard fights and get a mine up and going, your payback is often not 10 years. It's often two or three years in extreme cases because the grades are so good. And that's why it is not often 
call the easiest country that attracts the capital. It's also depending on your geological heritage. What what will eventually see you attracting money? If you can come in, make sure your payback is two or three years, and after that, it's on the upside. It has the DRC has managed to actually attract certain amounts of capital um, and, and been successful in that. But it has been very very tough going. I um, I think from a history of attracting foreign capital, and again, a bit with, I guess, South African glasses, um, South Africa has been phenomenally effective over many years, decades, to attract and build the mining industry. And it's only when the policy started to become investor unfriendly that it has stalled and is now starting to decline. And for a range of other reasons, including access to infrastructure, poor power uh, issues, and, and, and community issues uh, with big expectations around your mines. I think um, at the end of the day, um, if you do design policies, you have the right geology, I think you'll re-attract and the American uh, investment public will um, uh, re-look at Africa. And I think there are, we are getting close to a moment again where, first of all, the need of critical materials is evident and, and building supply chains that are moving away from what could be seen as called unfriendly regions or clear unfriendly regions, um, there is an opportunity to, for Africa to advertise itself again. Um, I think the the past called um, fears, and I, I've looked at one of the questions there on called the extraction model uh, of the past. I think one of the, the positive co-developments is that any mining company in the world that wants to attract either investor money or wants to get into a country or into a region, it better have its ESG story right and have better better have the, the credentials ready to show that they're not coming in there to or the old rape and pillage uh, uh, attitude of, of mining and going. Um, there's not a shareholder nowadays in many of the called financial capitals of the world that doesn't start a conversation with the CEO of, Tell me about your ESG. What are you doing there? What are you doing on your social area? What, what, what? How, how does your environmental track record look? And how do you intend to actually, when going into the region, make sure that my money has called a uh, uh, a governance overlay and a, and a social overlay that I can justify to my investors again? So my sense is there is there's definitely a. Um, uh, uh, Call the time opening up with the need for the minerals are there. The governments are starting to wake up. And I think there's a, uh, it, it's still a long slog, but there, and, and, and particularly, I think it's, there, there's pretty much unfair blaming of the mining companies of all the troubles around mines. Um, the mining companies that we work with, um, the CEOs we talk with, they are incredibly committed to getting their ESG right. Um, and they are very much using that throughout the organizational culture to make sure that where they operate, they they build the relationships and they are a force for good. Um, so I'm I'm quite confident that there is a time coming now where this return of capital into Africa is going to accelerate. And um, I think there's a, the evidence of called African leadership seeing what the benefits mining can do um, is going to emerge as well. And, and that is also a big opportunity for, for US capital to relook at that relationship and relook at the opportunities in Africa. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. Um, so we're going to move to Q&A here. Um, and I just wanted to note, of course, uh, I will say, you know, Chinese companies 
um, as much as it pains me to admit this, uh, they have stayed the course, and now they're, they are reaping the benefits. And um, that's, that's a reality that uh, the U.S. Uh, has to face head on. Um, so, uh, yeah, uh, so Tony, uh, if you, you got a mic right behind you, just identify yourself quickly. And uh, Hi, Tony Carroll. Thank you very much for an excellent panel, and I'll be very brief. Uh, Hank, maybe this is pointed to you. Uh, first, a comment. Uh, one of the reasons the U.S. hasn't been particularly active in mining is partly because we don't really have the capital market structure that provides the financing vehicles that really allow and energize, particularly junior mining. That tends to be Australia, Canada, South Africa, the London Exchange. Uh, so we've really, in effect, overregulated and, and, in effect, driven out the junior miners in the United States' access to capital. As a securities lawyer in Denver in the 1970s and 80s, I saw that firsthand. Secondly, as, and Rome Planck was a client of mine, so I, I can speak about the decline of a, of a world-class company because of Chinese competition. Hank, the, I could go on, but the, last, the only question I really have for you is, Africa is on the verge of this Africa Continental Free Trade Agreement, which is going to maybe solve some of the problems that you noted in terms of supply chain. The rub will be, Peter, in your uh, model is that I might be willing to invest in a processing plant in Kenya or Botswana, but I'm not going to probably want to invest in a processing plant in Burundi. And the reasons is the risk profiles in Botswana and Kenya, and let alone the infrastructure, power supply, technical competence, human capacity, institutional structure, uh, professional environment, and so forth, are much more conducive to an investment in processing. I guess the challenge will be in African nationalism whether or not the Burundians will complain about a processing plant being built in Kenya or South Africa or Botswana where the risk profiles are less, or will that happen because of the idea of building supply chains intra-Africa will mean that they'll be willing to surrender some of those restrictions on resource nationalism at a, at a na national level? Yeah, Hank, do you want to weigh it, in? Uh, sorry, was the question addressed to me or to Peter? Uh, to, to you initially, I think, but, but um, oh, yeah, on. yeah. so why don't, you, why don't you start us off? Okay. I'll, t I'll try to answer because it, it was a, 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 a quite a broad set of issues you, you've touched on there. Um, firstly, capital markets structured to, to actually uh, um, source the capital for the type of rescue you're taking on in mining. Absolutely. Uh, there's, there's uh, let's call it horses for courses. They, they, there's a, a distinct benefit that the Canadian <laughs> capital markets have over many other markets, for example. And you'll, that's why you'll see them appearing in, in Africa relative to the U.S. companies that agree. From an attractiveness of putting downstream facilities and stimulating downstream manufacturing um, or, or, or upgrading of, of their raw materials, um, distinct differences in, in how that gets approached by the different countries as well and your willingness to commit. I think money being a long-term game, um, stability of government and stability of policies, I have seen is a very, very important driver by companies to make a decision which companies and countries they would, uh, which countries they would support in upping the capital apart from the mine and going downstream further. I think secondly, certain countries have gotten the model right on um, incentivizing downstream manufacture, manufacturing or upgrading of the supply chain. In the case of again, coming back to South Africa, it used to be a very attractive proposition because power was second cheapest in the world and that attracted downstream smelting technologies. It attracted 
um, um, a whole range of industry that would not have come if you didn't have those external circumstances that would have helped you in actually justifying the investment coming through. Now, I think in Africa, that's still quite a challenge to see all the bits and pieces falling into place that would make you put a either a power intensive or a skills intensive or a capital intensive entity in a country to upgrade the materials. Now, it is at certain levels, and it's either from a scale availability of power, as I mentioned, it's happening now, for example, in the DRC. Um, Robert Friedland has now got enough scale of mining. It becomes even challenging to get that type of concentrate out of the country logistically. And then the next step is I'm going to build a smelter um, that, that obviously concentrate the, concentrates the product not only, but being able to smelt in that country on hydropower gives you another advantage, which is low carbon copper being produced from the Congo. You've got everything falling into place, but those are rather exceptions than the standard um, availability of, of all the right resources to make that happen. Now, it's probably not a direct answer to what you're mentioning, why Burundi, why Kenya. Um, I think if your external circumstances are in favor, your government policy is in place, um, you have the right resource as well. And environmental legislation, that doesn't have to be light as long as it is clear. And that's also where we've seen mistakes made by government is that if it is an open-ended debate on what eventually the set of rules is that you have to ad, uh, adhere to, or if those rules change while you build the plant or just finish the plant, makes a very big difference in how you perceive that and if the next investment will come. Maybe, Peter, you can add to that as well. Yeah, so we'll go to Dr. Farm and then Peter, and we got to be quick. Yeah. Well. Uh, just very quickly, because Hank uh, uh, laid out most of it, but uh, I think as even as the entire life cycle of a mining investment is stretched out over time. Uh, that time in this particular case works because the African uh, continental free trade area is in legal force, but it's going to take time to see the results. But within the sub-regional communities, you see, uh, the East Africa community I'd single out, have developed that uh, in non-extractive uh, industries that value chain across borders. They've begun to do that. So it, that's an area where I can see as, a mi as the mining life cycle spins up, where the ground is prepared for that resource nationalism to be spread a little into a resource pan-Africanism, if you will, at least on a sub-regional basis. It can happen. But I think the big initial investments are going to be actually often in single markets. Hank talked about the DRC and the Ivanhoe project there. I could see something happening in a similar vein in Guinea, where you've got the iron and all the water in the world for, for hydro, and again, another place for low carbon uh, uh, iron and, uh, and other minerals to be extracted. So I, I, I see those opportunities. But remember, the gap is so large, there's room for everyone. I mean, when you're talking about a nine point something, uh, million ton deficit just to meet today's relatively low barriers uh, and the gap investment. Uh, there's opportunity for almost everyone and everyone. Yeah. Yeah. I'd just like to touch on one of the, one of the points that Tony made raised in his question on the African Continental Free Trade Agreement. I mean, the issue, it's true, it's correct, it's now in force and most 
African countries have, have ratified it. The problem is that most of them haven't actually upgraded their tariff schedules to actually make the, the thing work. I mean, South Africa has, Egypt has, a couple of other countries have. So it's still, you know, I think missing in action. On the issue of um, value chains and, and, and processing, obviously the African mining vision, which came out in tw 2009, quite a long time ago, that's the centerpiece of it, is side stream, upstream, downstream beneficiation. They're trying to roll it out, the African Union, across Africa through what they call country mining visions. But, I, you know, I think one lesson that's always stuck with me um, is, is uh, diamond processing, because if you look at South Africa and Botswana, for that matter, where both governments have been pretty messianic about trying to create a cutting industry, the, the major mining, diamond mining companies such as De Beers have always said, well, the, cost, the question is the cost yeah. of cutting in South Africa and Botswana is completely outweighed by the cost of cutting in India and China and Thailand and other places where the, the labor costs are much lower. And in South Africa, actually, for slightly different reasons, the cutting industry has more or less collapsed, and such as it was, has really moved to Botswana. But even there, there are questions as to how sustainable it is and, and whether you know the, the Botswana government is obviously pretty strong about creating, driving a domestic processing industry. I'm not so sure how successful it's been. So it's a question of, always a question of economics. But I mean, I, I agree. I mean, to the extent African mining countries can create smelters and concentrators and the rest of it, so much the better, rather than exporting everything out of the country. Yeah, that's, um, that's why I'm a little skeptical or, or worried maybe about um, all the, the rhetoric around moving up the value chain, which is absolutely necessary for African countries. But, um, but you just touched on some of the challenges, right? And, and even you would think uh, African countries would have a really significant uh, wage advantage. They actually don't over places like Bangladesh. Yeah. Uh, and then you add to that infrastructure problems, power, which yeah. is just racking South Africa as, as an issue now. Um, uh, human, uh, you know, um, capital and, yeah. and all these other issues. Yeah. It makes it very, very hard well, for any company yeah. to create. Well, that's the issue with Simondu in, in yes. Guinea, right. which you, Peter, touched on, which, I mean, it's the richest iron ore potential in the world, but there's no infrastructure, so right. you, need a, you need to get the ore, iron ore to port and you need a rail network, neither of which exists. So before which you have that, the companies have to build themselves. Yeah, exactly. And this is what Ivanhoe, it, yeah, yeah. you know, it ha it's had to build its own yeah. infrastructure yeah. Um, to, yeah. to deal with these problems. So um, we can maybe squeeze in uh, one more very quick question, if, um, and then it, uh, the question will have to be quick, and, and the answers have to be very quick. Quick, so. quick question. Yeah, um, hello, I'm Carl von Balten. Quick question here. So the question from this entire, by the way, wonderful discussion, loved it. The question you ask is, can Africa be a solution to the U.S. Uh, mineral issue? Yes, we all agree on that. But there's problems, we can see. My question is, what can we do here in Washington, D.C., through policy and legislation to change this to help? Yeah, very good question. Yeah. Um, well, that was that was more a, a question sort of in your or portfolio for this panel. So if okay. you want to jump in and okay. make anybody else. Certainly. Yeah. Uh, I think, uh, thank you for that question. I think we are all, all in agreement. Africa is a, a great solution for the critical needs of the United States for, for secure uh, supply chains for critical minerals. But how do we encourage that? One is I think we have to adopt not just a whole of government, 
uh, everyone talks of a whole really a whole of America approach to this. But we start with let's start with the government piece. Uh, the U.S. International Development Finance Corporation has sixty billion dollars to commit. Less than about half of that has been committed. Uh, it's had only one uh, TechMet, very very modest round of financing in the mining sector. Now there there's talk of some increases there, but certainly there's one area where there's mo there's actually money to, to Tony's question. There needs just to be a little more political will. Uh, we need to also engage other parts of the government in making this part of the, the conversation. We're, we're very good uh, at, at least in this administration, about talking about ESG, but there's also commercial diplomacy. There's also uh, advocating for American businesses that are interested in out there, and so that needs to be ramped up. But there's also the private sector, and I think here, uh, those are well, there's a reason why the search for capital on miners goes to Toronto, goes to London, goes to uh, places in the Far East and in Australia. <laughs> and the reason is American capital has a tendency to have a very short-term vision. Uh, they want immediate returns, quarterly reports, and uh, mining is by nature a long-term, and I'll refer to Peter and to Hank on that. And so I think there's a bit of work to be done also on on the private sector side and rethinking uh, about uh, how, how we do go about this. And then certainly it's in the interest of American business to have secure supply chains, but are they willing to pay the cost that that will uh, require? And that's a, another question. Yeah. Uh, Hank or Peter, do either of you have any inputs on that? Uh, it's okay if you don't, but <laughs> okay, yeah. Um, and I, I would just add as well, um, <laughs> You know, and, and Tony actually in his question touched on this, but, um, you know, if we're going, and, and we have to look beyond American companies and, and in the U.S., but, but there are resources here and there is capacity here that I think should be developed, but the regulatory environments are insane uh, in, in some of these places. And um, this is from, um, uh, I actually wrote this down, a, a Wilson Center scholar named Duncan Wood. He said, uh, mining projects in the United States might face more than 30 local, state, and federal regulations. Mm -hmm. Uh, average um, uh, number of years uh, or the average permitting time frame is seven to ten years in the United States. In places like Canada, it's two years, Canada and Australia, and they have the same environmental standards. Um, one mining company estimated that excessive permitting in the United States decreases values, uh, value of projects by 50%. Um, so those are those are crazy numbers. Um, that's why I wrote them down. So uh, I think not only would uh, addressing some of those regulatory environments uh, uh, help us uh, benefit from our own natural resources, but it'll also foster more uh, mining companies, junior mine. You know some of the things that Tony talked about. So uh, there's there's an element there as well. Um, we could talk about this probably all day, actually, and, and there's so many, uh, you know, uh, elements of this we didn't even get to, and, and maybe we'll have to revisit them in the future, but we're already over time. Um, so uh, thank you all so much. Uh, really appreciate you coming. Um, I thought it was a, a fascinating discussion. I especially appreciate my panelists, uh, Peter Leone, uh, J. Peter Fahm, uh, Hank DeHoop, uh, joining us virtually. Um, and I, I, I hope that um, you know you you all uh, stay tuned for for other um, activities in the space that that Heritage is is looking at. Um, and uh, with that, uh, we'll we'll uh, call it a day for now.
Thanks so much, everybody. Sure. Thank you.